This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hi everyone, Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. I am so happy you all are here for today's conversation. Our guest is David Gross. He's a real estate developer who partnered with Nipsey Hussle to create Vector90, a co-working safe space in South Los Angeles where entrepreneurs can network, create, and more. He talks about how he's planning to continue Nipsey's legacy, the importance of having spaces like this in inner city communities, how he hopes to spread this mission across the country, and what it means to show up for your community. As David says, the marathon continues. Enjoy. Well, Dave, I'm excited that you're here today. It's kind of crazy. We were just talking about how when we're recording this, it's early February. We're almost a year out from the anniversary of Nipsey Hussle's death. And it's been a gnarly year. And it was actually through following Nipsey's work in South Central and Crenshaw and his really kind of radical activist investment strategy. Um, my best friend Nia and I are trying to do some radical activist investing in Detroit. Yeah. And we were following along what you guys were doing. And and then he sadly passed. And that was weirdly how we got connected. Because there was this big, obviously, cultural conversation and, and a huge outpouring of love from L.A. Yeah. And all of us talking about what this shocking event meant wound up leading to you and I having a conversation and now here we are so thanks for coming no thank you for having me yeah how I I don't feel like I can start in my normal way of asking you questions about how you grew up I I I really do want to talk about Nipsey's legacy and and what the last year has been and and you know 
where you guys were when this happened. I mean, I, I feel like we should start there. Yeah. So you're gonna make this easy, huh? Ask me a small question to begin. Yeah, just a just a small, just a small, small one. No, you know, one of the um clearly it was a huge shared trauma and shock event for mm. I think the entire city of LA, which was one of the you know, one of the few positive things about it was to see how beloved he was mm-hmm. by the entire city and to see how people um came together and how everyone really understood what he lived and what he represented. So if I speak about his legacy, you know, I I think the greatest testament to his legacy is that he intentionally started crafting it while he was here. I think the marathon brand speaks to everything that he was. Um, I think it's the perfect brand, actually. Like most people, when they start off in a career that can lead to fame or individual fame, you know, they embrace that and they push that, not in a bad way. But he didn't start Nipsey Hussle merch. He didn't start mm. Hustle Records. He started, uh, you know, All Money In was his record label. And mm-hmm. that speaks to that concept of ownership, like radical ownership, right? I want to own, you know, we have conversations where he talk about, you know, vertical integration and horizontal integration. Like he wanted to own and be a part of every part of the process, mm-hmm. right? So that's one part of his legacy that he imparted to all the artists that worked with him is try to own as much as you can and, and, and treat yourself like a brand, right? Not as an, a person or a personality, you're a brand. Coke is a brand. He's like, you don't want to be, I don't want to be Nip Hustle the rapper. I want to be Nipsey Hustle the brand. There's a difference. So, hmm. so that's part of his legacy. But the marathon, I think, is it, uh, it's a perfect manifestation of, of what he was because he created something that everyone can take and internalize in their own way and run hmm. with. Yeah, and I think that's... That's kind of the art of inspiration. Like when you when you do something like at a really, really high level, but you can make people who don't do that specific thing or maybe don't haven't found the thing they do at a high level yet, but they can take inspiration from you and mm-hmm. still incorporate it into their life. And I think that's what he did with the marathon. Yeah. 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 I mean, to me, this sort of seismic level of his ethos, like it feels on par for me with Nike growing up as a kid in like the just do it era. Like I'm not a professional athlete. I'm short. I have asthma. It's never going to happen for me, but there's something about when, when there's something so simple and so inspiring, like when something's really been distilled down to, to like a match that you can strike, anybody can go out there and, you know, train better themselves, push themselves that that's kind of what like those big athletic brands it's a universal concept said yeah Yeah, and and there was something so amazing as an observer you know I wasn't part of his company obviously in the way that you are but like as an observer I was like oh I should be thinking even more deeply about what I invest in and why I should I should be considering you know what stamp am I putting on something and and when somebody you know, as a woman in entertainment, like offers me something to say, no, I'm worth more than that. Like, I, I want to own a piece of that. I don't just want to show up as a face for something. Yeah. You know, it, it's pretty incredible. And and to see in the weeks after that happened, like, you know, the murals go up and the parades happen and, yeah. and just LA, like LA shows up for people yeah. in a pretty amazing way. Yeah. I don't think anyone will ever forget that. It was, um, having the ceremony at Staples, like anyone who's from LA or if you spent 
a meaningful amount of time in LA, you get what Staples means to the city. Yeah. Um, it, it's culturally, it's resonant. So to have the ceremony there and then the procession afterwards, like I think everyone who, who participated that day, it'll be something that unifies us across time. We'll all think back and remember that. So that was, uh, that was incredible hmm. to, to feel that. That's beautiful. How did how did you guys meet initially? <laughs> so it's a um, it's a story he told a lot, and and I you know it's out there. We met at a Laker game, but there were I had been working to try to connect with him about the Vector ninety concept for probably three or four months before we finally met. Um, so I had actually met with his 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 team, his partners, and I was like, look, I have this thing I want to do in the Crenshaw district, and I have to do it with Nip. And they're like, okay, we'll come talk to you about it. And so they came and I pitched them on this, you know, co-working space and business incubator. And it was going to lead to all these other things. And I'm sure they were like, you're going to do all this in, in, in the Crenshaw district? But he was actually working on, he was working on Victory Lap. He'd been working on it forever, basically. So anyone who's, who's followed his career knows he'd been working on that album, you know, probably for six or seven years to get it right. So he was, he was in the final stages of that. So like when he comes out of album mode, like, it's something we think he'll definitely be into. Mm. Um, we'll get back to you. And a couple months later, we were side-by-side side at a Lakers game. And um, so I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to bother him. I'm not going to bother him about work. Um, so we just started chatting about the game for the first couple quarters. And he was there with YG, and they were talking. So I was like, I'm definitely not going to do it. It's not the right time. But we had such a great conversation and rapport. Mm. And by the third quarter, I was like, hey, look. I have this, this radical idea I think is right up your alley that I've been wanting to sit down and talk to you about. I was like, I talked to, to Steve-O and JP, and I know you're focusing on your album. And he was like, nah, tell me. And so I walked into the concept, and he was like, let's have a follow-up meeting. And I was like, I, of course. And he was like, when do you want to do it? I was like, it's up to you. He was like, I'll come see you tomorrow. <laughs> and so literally, nice. he came to see me the next day, and my office at the time was in Calabasas. He really came to Calabasas the following morning. And... um. We met for a couple hours, and then we shook hands, and we're like, okay, let's get started doing it. And that, that's how we officially co-founded Vector 90 together. So cool. Yeah. It's interesting when, do you get that sense, like you guys wound up sitting together at a Laker game that night, you'd already met with the team, like something in the universe knew, there, were, there, was, some, there was some kind of energy or some kind of, did it, did it feel like fate or like things were just lining up because to me and maybe this is the entertainer in me i'm like that's a movie moment you know like you guys wound up sitting there that's like the moment yeah. in the script where everyone goes oh, it's gonna happen no so the way it worked out the fact that he um the fact that he was so receptive and came the next day yeah because it, it could have been one of those things where like I always knew it was an idea that was right in his that he would have a heart for right mm-hmm. and as i was coming up with the, the initial concept i wasn't kind of scouring the landscape and trying to figure out who it should be. I was like, no, this is, this is Nip. It's the Crenshaw district and it's, he's bigger than life in LA. And this is what he's about. Like standing kind of shoulder to shoulder with his neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I was like, not, nah, you know, he's the one. So I wrote it with him in mind. So I knew we would always connect, but it could have been one of those things. If I hadn't seen him that day, it could have been a year later. Right. And then he dropped Let's say it had been months later and he dropped Victory Lap and it was really successful and it went on, he went on tour and it went on to be Grammy nominated. Mm-hmm. You know, it could have turned into a, we could have met two years later and connected right. on it, right? Because I, I saw, after we started working closely, I saw the whirlwind of activity that his life was because he had a lot of things going on. 
So that part was definitely kismet or, you know, whatever, whatever, whenever the universe kind of conspires to make something happen um, at a given moment. Yeah. It was a bit of that. Yeah. That always is the thing that feels yeah. like a little touched by the wand to me, you yeah. know, that's really special. So you obviously wound up back in LA yeah. and you're from LA. You grew up in South Central, but there were many years where you left LA yeah. and I kind of want to go through the story. I, I always like to start with people because so many people who sit on that couch come in here in the way that you are with this incredibly impressive world that they've built and achievements. And I know listeners are like, how did that happen? And I'm, I'm always curious, you know, we were talking about your kids and like the personalities. And I think about what I was like as a kid. I'm always curious to know, like, who were you at eight or 10? Like, who was that David? Were you interested in all these systems? Were you always like a tiny entrepreneur or, or were you like a completely different kind of kid? Yeah, so you know what? My childhood, I had two distinct childhoods. Mm. So I was born and raised in South Central LA, and I lived, I lived in South Central until I was nine and a half, ten. So between until the end of the third grade, and I ended okay. up moving to um, a small town in Texas. But in LA, you know, it was the '80s. I'd say South Central was probably the epicenter of the gang issue, um, the epicenter of the war on drugs. There's still the aftermath of the riots and, and racial tension, or at least mm-hmm. between the community and the police. So it was just a chaotic, a very chaotic time and place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my parents were young, um, and I had an older brother who had a different father. We all kind of lived in the same neighborhood. So I think that that definitely added to how chaotic our family structure was. And so by the time I was nine, you know, my my mother decided to send us to Texas to live with our grandmother's sister, so our great aunt. So there was literally life in LA, you know, until I was nine and a half, ten, and then life in Texas after that. And just two, there were some similarities, but then just very stark contrast. And I imagine going from this epicenter of Los Angeles to, as you said, a small town in the middle of Texas is a oh, it was, culture shock. Listen, I grew up in a town in Texas. I grew up in a town smaller. I doubt you ever been to a town as small as this. So. The population sign outside the town when I went said 501. Whoa. And I check it. I, I checked it like a year ago and it's actually decreased. So it's like 475 now. But a really, really small town in East Texas. It's like halfway between Dallas and Houston. Okay. Um, so yeah, everything about it was kind of a 180. So my parents are really young and I go to live with my great aunt. So she's older than my grandmother. She was a retired teacher at the time. So she was in her early 60s, mid 60s. And I mean, she was like, she was the oldest person I'd ever been around. So that was, and it sounds simplistic at this point, but I was like scared of her for the first, you know, four to six months that I was there. Retired teacher. So she definitely had a, she was very austere and she was very much a disciplinarian Mm -hmm. um, and just radically different than my life in LA. Um, And teachers are structured. Yeah. So she was an English teacher. So she called the TV the idiot box. So she didn't let me watch TV. I think there were a couple of programs that we watched, 60 Minutes, mm-hmm. <laughs> like something else. Mm-hmm. Um, she made me read every day, which, I mean, put this on the table for later, probably one of the biggest difference makers in my life. Mm-hmm. Literally, she made me read every day, nonstop. 
could you choose what you were reading? Like, could you pick by interest or were there things she was kind of assigning you to read? Well, I started off reading age-appropriate stuff when I was fourth grade. Yeah. But literally, the town was so small, I read, I think I read every book in the library, every children's book in the library. And then I started reading books as I got older from her library, her personal library. Mm. Um, James Baldwin, Toni Morrison. So like, mm. she had an expansive library. And so I read all of that as I got older. And she had a hidden library of like Jackie Collins and Mario <laughs> Puzo. And I read all that as well. So no, reading became, you know, reading became a, a central part of my being. And I highlight that because, you know, you asked me what I was like as a kid. And was I always an entrepreneur or smarter? I don't really remember school when I was in, in South Central. We moved a lot. And um, I spent a lot of time out of school. And I was probably viewed as a, to the extent you can be a troublemaker, you know, in the second or third grade. Mm-hmm. Probably a little bit of a troublemaker. But in the stillness of being in a really small town and, and like kind of bereft of chaos, yeah, I really got into school and then athletics and, yeah, kind of life changed. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting, the contrast. When you talk about, you know, your your family being so young and yeah. things feeling hectic when you were here in California, as an adult with the kind of perspective you have now, are there things you look back on that you see ways that as a child you were trying to process that stuff and finding – outlets for, you know, whether it's stress or nervous energy? Like, is there anything that sticks out to you now? Well, so yes, I have a lot of thoughts on that. But it's, I process my own childhood in contrast to, because I have a number of siblings. Hmm. Uh, So I had an older, I had an older brother who actually moved to Texas with me when I first moved and we were separated. So he went to live with um, another aunt in Houston. The difference being, I was... 10, he was 13. And so that three-year gap, he was already he was already living a life that teenagers in South Central will live. And so it was a lot to handle for my family in Houston because he just took that life to Houston. And so I, about six months in, he got sent back to LA, which was tough for both of us because we were best friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and so seeing his life, the direction it went when he went back, and then my life makes me appreciate so much we were, we were talking before we started recording about exposure mm-hmm. and environment because we were the same person essentially. And I looked up to him. He was, I had a trach when I was little. So I had to learn how to talk again when I was two. And it was that thing where you, you know, it's like snot's always running out. So when we were kids, he fought everyone in our neighborhood for making fun of me. So I had it for like two years. And so literally he was the person who always protected me, who I admired, respected the most. And I thought he was the smartest person in the world. It's most little brothers thinking of their big brother, but completely divergent paths after mm-hmm. uh, he went back to LA and I stayed in Texas. And so much of it was kind of the flip of a coin. So he got sent right. to, to Houston, big city, and there was a lot to get into. And I went to this really small town where there was, had I wanted to get in as much trouble as possible, there would have been nothing. Right. Um, so, yeah, a lot of – so, anyway, looking for outlets and, and, you know, ways to express the the angst or whatever you're feeling. I think about that a lot because I got to put it into, like, I became a star cross-country runner. And it was just because I was in the country and I would run from our house to, to town, right? Mm. So that's the most crude example I can give of 
I had time to fill. Like I had energy and, and you know, I wanted to pour it into something. And so yeah. I became good at the th- things that were immediately accessible to me. That's super interesting. Did, did your great aunt, being an English teacher, when you got into more and more advanced literature, was she guiding you? I, I think back to, I, I had an English professor who changed my life in high school, so much so that by the time I was a senior in high school and knew I wanted to be an actor, I petitioned my school. I was like, I don't need to take AP calculus. I'm never going to need to know what, the, I just don't need to know this. Let me take yeah. two AP English classes at the same time because I wanted to just study with Mr. Goss all the time. And I, and I think about how he would ask me these questions as a teenager um, about what I was reading and my brain was in whatever developmental stage, it, you know, it was in at 14 and 15 and 17. And he really taught me so much about critical thinking. Yeah. And so I think the, the, the like education nerd in me is like, oh my God, you had a teacher in the house. What was it like? <laughs> you know, yeah. I wonder about that. You know, so my, my taste and preferences immediately were just shaped by like her personal library. Mm. It was a lot of the um, prominent black thinkers and authors. Mm. And she was born in 1927. So, you know, she experienced a lot of racial trauma in her life. And so mm. she had very strong views. You know, I, I think she was, she was definitely viewed as being radical in the town we lived in because she lived in, um, she lived in Detroit for a while. Her and my uncle, her brother, he was a Black Panther. She she was for a while. So to be in a small town in East Texas, and you know, I read. It's, this is this is a funny, this is a funny um, linkage to Nipsey. So I think I probably read the this book, The Spook Who Sat by the Door, probably two or three times when I was a kid because it was one of her, her favorite books, and that was Nipsey's favorite book. And so in one of our first conversations, we were talking about that. And he was like, you read? I was like, yeah, I read that probably two or three times. But yeah, it was shaped by a lot of what I consumed was shaped by her worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was a very strong, really, really intelligent woman. And so much of it I didn't appreciate at the time because I was a kid. And, and mm-hmm. you know, you confuse someone being stern or strict with being mean and, and you kind of want to escape. And I couldn't appreciate then that she saw you know, what I came from. And mm-hmm. she probably had concerns about, you know, if I went back, what could happen? Or if I, I didn't have kind of these strict guardrails around me, what could happen? Um, so it was probably an added layer on top of her just normal countenance. Mm-hmm. And it took me until I was in my late 20s to really get that, you know, she wasn't, because as a kid, you process things. And, and for my entire childhood, I left home when I was 16 to go to um, kind of a boarding school. You left her home in Texas then? Yeah. Okay. Um, and one of the reasons I left is because I thought she was so strict. And mm. then, you know, when I was in my late 20s and 30s, I was like, man, I, I did her a disservice, like, internally. I never uh, appreciated how much she probably saved me from, you know, everything I'd been exposed to before and in myself by the way she brought me up. I think about those generations that came before us. Yeah. And I think for us, you know, you have little kids. I don't, I don't have kids yet. But I think about the way that our kids will grow up and the wealth of knowledge and, and the lexicon we have now about, you know, trauma and generational trauma and expression and love languages and communication styles and all these things. And 
they're going to be so lucky because there's so much more we're able to communicate. But I think back to your grandma having been born in 1927 and her, there wasn't the communication then for someone to say, I'm being strict with you because of X, Y, Z, you know, you, you showed your love through action, even if you didn't, even if society wasn't talking about it. And it's kind of cool that almost in reverse, you see it and now, and you know how to communicate about it. Yeah. Cause the thing is I, I didn't get the experience as a person, right? Mm -hmm. So I didn't get to, um, you know, I was in my, like I said, my mid twenties, late twenties, when I started thinking about what was her life like in the Mm. the sixties? Like she was a, you know, she, she went to college. She went to a, and it's, it's, it's tragic. I forget where she went to school, (laughs) Um, but she, she went to a college where she had to be a minority. Was that in Detroit, do you think, or? No, I think she might've gone to school in Texas. Okay. But at a time when a lot of black people didn't go to college, especially black women, she went to college and she got a degree and she was always this, she never cowered. She never feared, you know, people's perception. She never minded sticking out. She was so brave, right? And yeah. none of that that I connected with me, like at, an, at a deeper level. And I thought about, she had this whole interesting, like incredible life story that I never got to like sit and talk to her about and never got to appreciate with her. And now I'm just in all of her looking back. Mm-hmm. Um, but she definitely, you know, changed my life and in effect changed my kid's life and, you know, everyone in my immediate sphere. You know, me being here is directly attributable to her. What was her name? Leela. Leela. Yeah. Hmm. Do you have a favorite photo of her that you keep in your house or your office? Yeah, I have um I have this little this little um box that I've carried with me since I've had it, I think since college, since high school. Mm-hmm. That I have some pictures of us. That's cool. Yeah. I have a a little bit of that with my grandfather. Yeah. I've got like some really amazing old photos of him and I've got I actually have his tags from when he was in the Navy yeah. and my grandfather was so old that they weren't, they weren't, I don't even know what they're from. They're not shaped like dog tags. They're round. It's like bigger than a quarter and smaller than a 50 cent piece with his name stamped in it Yeah. and his Navy number. And I'm like, what even is this? How old, what era did you live in? But I've got some of those things of his that just like, yeah. that are pretty rad. And similarly to what you were saying, now I think about it, I, I lost my grandfather when I was 24. And God, I think about some of the were stories he used. We were, yeah. yeah. He was my mom's dad and he was he was a special dude, yeah. like a really special dude. And I think about some of the stories that he used to tell me and, you know, I would roll my eyes and be like, oh, because as a kid you hear, well, when I was your age, yeah. you know, and now I'm like, God, if I had if I had just been a little more aware then in that decade, the way I am in this one, I would have loved to sit down and interview him about his life. You know, like, ugh. I, I think that all the time. Yeah. And I was like, I, I would kill to go back and have an adult conversation. I would the, just love it. The awareness that I have now. Yeah. yeah. So anybody listening, if your grandparents are still alive, interview them. Yeah, for sure. You have an iPhone, you can make a movie. I've been, I've been, and and, you know, it's interesting reflecting on that. I've, I've now started asking my parents a lot of questions about their lives, you know, and I'm, I'm lucky. My parents are both still relatively healthy and they're adorable. 
and you know, getting old, but like they like being called adorable. Yeah, they, they kind of do. <laughs> you know, my dad, it's really funny. He's like, We're pretty cute. And I'm like, who are you? <laughs> There's some sort of sweet vibe happening there in retirement that's really lovely. Yeah. And and again, similarly, I think about being a teenager. I used to have to work for my dad every summer and yeah. I was pissed. My dad was this incredible photographer. He started getting his work published in Vogue when he was 22 because he hustled and started self-submitting while he was a student at Art Center. He'd moved uh, to the U.S. from Canada and he got a green card and was a student here and literally was just like out there grinding, you know, to make art. And I had to work for him every summer. And I thought, this is so annoying. All my friends are at the mall. There's like new CDs coming out. I'm missing everything. And recently I, I sort of went to him with my tail between my legs and I was like, so I never paid attention on set when I had to work for you. And I'm really embarrassed that I didn't learn more about photography from arguably one of the best photographers around. Can you teach me? <laughs> Did you pick up any of his talent? Like genetically? Was um, it transmitted? I'm very, very visual. Yeah. So I frame everything like a photo and I notice little things because my dad taught me how to edit. Yeah. So he would shoot on these these cameras, Mamias, that had three by five film. So the negatives were like this and color. So instead of looking at like a weird negative that we, yeah. we would shoot in like a 35, they were essentially like a tiny photo and you'd edit them on a light box. So my dad would give me a yellow grease pencil and send me through the rolls of film yeah. to do an edit. And then he would take the red pencil and sit with me and show me what I picked right and what I didn't notice that was wrong. Yeah. Or, you know, if I didn't pick up on a detail that made something unusable, because this was before like anybody had an app on their phone where they could retouch, you had to pay a retoucher a lot of money to fix a photo. So essentially you wanted to pick the perfect photos. And so I'm really, really particular about the way things look and fonts and everything, which is cool. But people will ask me, you know, there's technicality to photography, like your f-stop and your aperture and all that. And I'm like, I don't actually know the answer to that. I know if it looks good and people are like, yeah. you're dead. How do you not know this? <laughs> so I'm, I'm taking the lesson I learned from not having asked my grandfather as many things as I wish I had. Yeah. And I'm, I'm doing things a little differently with my parents now. Very cool. So, you know, we learn. Yeah. It's a crazy thing too, to think about what it would be like to be a student with the perspective we have now. Sometimes I think that like education is wasted on the young because they think it's annoying. So much is wasted on the young. It's crazy. <laughs> and now I'm like, what I would give to have my only job be to sit in a room and learn every day. That would be so amazing. Right? Yeah. You don't have time to, I feel like I don't have time to 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 do it. Sometimes I forget to eat, right? Or I don't eat sometimes just not mm-hmm. because I'm dieting, but just because you're busy and running. Mm-hmm. So to think back to all the idle time, I had when I when we were younger. Yeah. Um, oh my god! Snacks at to, recess. Yeah. And you were what? just wishing for time to pass. You were wishing yeah. to be older. It's crazy. Yeah. It is kind of wild how, how things work. Where did you go to boarding school at sixteen? So it was a. Um, so I use the term boarding school. It's just the best way to describe it. Mm-hmm. But what happened is, and this is a really cool story, and I definitely want to um, highlight the person who set this emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, another person who changed my life from that small town. So. My, our school was so small that um, my basketball coach was also my math teacher, right? And so he taught all high school math. Hmm. And again, maybe maybe I wasn't the best basketball player. Maybe just because school was so small, but I ended up being the star 
the star basketball player. So I'm a star basketball player and I end up being pretty decent at math. Mm. Um, so and, like, a, and a running star. Yeah. And I think he might have been our my cross-country coach. Wow. In junior high. But East Town, small town, East Texas, football is everything. Yeah. Right? Um, if you're a guy. And if you're a girl, cheerleading is everything. Mm-hmm. So my coach, Coach Hayes, his daughter Christy's incredible, dynamic, bright, friendly, everyone's best friend. But she was born with a club foot, which meant that she just got excluded from she couldn't play basketball, she couldn't cheerlead. Mm. And it was his, and I, I saw it at the time. Like it was the one thing because he was a he was a track and basketball and football coach. It really bothered him that she couldn't participate and it bothered her, right? So he was always I think he was looking for an outlet for her. So he found this program that the state legislature had created in Texas because there was a dearth of doctors, advanced scientists, mathematicians graduating from Texas schools and staying in state. So mm. they created this trial program to encourage students to pursue hard sciences and math and stay in state. So the structure of it was you'd spend your last two years at the University of North Texas. So you would take all college classes. So when you graduated from high school, you'd have your first two years of college credits. The idea being wow. within stay in state and pursue an upper level degree, right? So they wanted to facilitate more doctoral students in you know chemistry, physics, et cetera. Yeah, STEM, essentially. Yeah. Wow. So he finds this program for her. And then he tells me, you know, David, I think you should consider this. And... At the time, life is good. You know, like I'm the president of the class. I'm the, you know, I'm doing well in school. And so I, I'm, I've stabilized in this really small town. And there were definitely aspects of it I didn't, I didn't like. But I had, you know, I had a world that was solid. But he spends a year working on me saying, hey, well, Christy's going to apply to the school and you should apply too. And so I don't think anything of it. And so I take the, the test that you have to take um, to see if you qualify. And it's a pretty straightforward process. I think we took, I forget the name of the test, but I think one of them, we took the, the PSAT like a year earlier than we typically would have. And it was pretty straightforward. Like the top 250 scores or top 300 scores got invites to attend for like 200 spot, slots. And I'm really cavalier, just kind of going throughout this process. And I go interview and I'm not thinking much of it. And then I get in, right? They're like, yeah, you scored fairly high. You know, you're one of the top however many scores in the state of Texas. So we're going to extend you admission. A big thing is it's free, right? Mm. Um, so I get to go. If I, if I decided to go, I get to go for free, get two years of college credits, and then theoretically graduate high school as a junior had I stayed in, in Texas to go to school. Because that's a big part of the Texas narrative that, you know, my, my grandmother was a retired teacher from a really small school system. So the level of poverty that I faced in South Central was the same in, in Texas. Mm. Just no chaos on top of the poverty. But um, that was always something I was trying to escape, right? And so I didn't know what to expect by going to this school, but I was like, look, if it gives me a, a way out um, of, you know, not having money, and I didn't really want to go back to, I didn't really want to go back to California at that point. Um, I didn't really want to stay in Texas long-term, I didn't know what I wanted to do, mm. but this just seemed like a conduit to something else. And so I ended up going to this school and that was probably, you know, there are probably three or four things if I look back at my life and say, those were 
change makers going to the school was, um, yeah, it was, it was an epiphany. So I was literally surrounded by 400 brilliant people. Um, so many of them now, I look back and they're, they have double doctorate degrees oh. in organic chemistry and physics. Like my, my roommate, he got two, two doctoral degrees and he's a professor somewhere. But everyone was really smart and, and socially and culturally very, very different. Actually, the school was in this town called Denton in uh, Texas, and it's a very um, kind of earthy, at the time, grunge was big. And so, like, it changed my musical taste completely. But, yeah, that was, um, that was a life changer. And then everyone there, like, the students who weren't going to stay in Texas so they could, you know, graduate and be a junior at the University of Texas, they wanted to go to Caltech or MIT. Mm-hmm. So it just shifted my thoughts about college, like, mm-hmm. what was possible and what I should be shooting for, right? Because I was always competitive at the very least. And so if everyone was thinking about these incredible schools, I was like, wait, I'm gonna go to a I'm gonna go Ivy League, right? That's the best. And so that kind of altered my reality a little bit. That's so cool. It is unbelievable the way that education can yeah. like just blow the doors off for you. But I really am curious about this shift in your musical taste. What were you listening to? And then what happened when you got into this grungy kind of scene? It was, it was all hip-hop prior to that because I had retained a lot from L.A. And then I picked up Texas rap at the time. But um, when I went to the school, was called Tam. When I went to Tam's, I mean, it was literally, obviously, Nirvana was massive. Nine Inch Nails, Radiohead. But like it was, grunge was at its, at its, maybe it wasn't at its peak, but all the grunge music, um, I picked up a lot of the classical kind of rock groups like um, the Grateful Dead. Mm. It was just, yeah, from a, from a musical and cultural perspective, it was very expansive. Yeah. Who was, what was Texas rap at the time? Who was standing out there? Oh, Texas rap. It was the Ghetto Boys. It was, um... It was the ghetto boy, actually, and not just Texas rap, but there was like Memphis rap, actually UGK, which is Texas, 8-Ball and MJG, which is uh, Memphis. So a lot of Southern stuff. And there were some like underground artists, and, and there were underground artists in Houston and, and at the time that were big. That's cool, because the scene in L.A. was so good. Like, just I, being a kid and growing up with Tupac here was like— Oh, and that's—so I mean, t- game Tupac changer. was, yeah. So as soon as I left— as soon as I left home, I shaved my head bald, and then I got two tattoos and two earrings. And so when I went back to see my grandmother on my first break, she almost had a heart attack because I was fully Tupac'd out. Wow. <laughs> you were like, he's my idol. Here yeah, we go. Everyone. Yeah. Oh, everyone. my God. Everyone. Yeah. I mean. And as, as much in the South and in Texas, like he was as, yeah, they loved him deeply. As, yeah. As much as anybody in L.A. Yeah. That's so cool. Okay, so you're at this, you're in this program, high school, but in college. And then what? After the two years, did you stay in Texas or did you go Ivy League? Um, I went to New York. So I got, um, I only applied to two schools. I applied to NYU and I applied to Cornell. So I wanted to go to New York. I didn't want to go back to LA. Mm. I didn't want to stay in Texas. What Um, was the draw of New York, you think? You know what? (sighs) It's so funny. The only the only conception I had in New York was what I'd seen in the media. 
And so mm. the hustle and bustle, and I knew I wanted to be a businessman. Mm. I didn't even know what, exactly what a businessman did. I just, the briefcase and the phone and, you know, they made a lot of money inside <laughs> New York. Right. <laughs> New York had that draw. Like, I got to go there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I literally applied to two schools, which looking back, like, that was pretty foolish. But I, I did well in the SATs and I was a National Merit Scholar. So I just made things easy. And it was a coin flip when I got in. So literally, it, when I got into Cornell, one, I thought all of New York was like Manhattan. I had, like, how would you, well, maybe other people know. I didn't know. I thought all of New York was a city. So I, I accepted Cornell because it was Ivy League. And I was like, okay, I'm going to be in the city or something like a city, right? And so not until I go and I, I, you, you get to Cornell by um, flying into Syracuse. And so touchdown in Syracuse. And on the drive from Syracuse to Cornell, they're pastures and it's it's rural, right? Yeah. Like, this looks just like Texas. What What is this? And I felt set up, but I actually ended up loving Ithaca and loving Cornell. Ithaca is a college town. Like Cornell basically is life there. And yeah. because it's so isolated, there's a very rich kind of culture on campus. There were tons of bars and lounges, and not lounges, bars and um, huge like Greek scene. Mm. Um, it was very dynamic. And it was very protective because it was only, you know, the, the campus. Yeah, it gives you bumpers in a yeah. way. What did you get into in college? You know what? I was, um, I'll say the, the, the drive to not be poor is, is so strong. And like I, I did all the things that a normal college kid does, right? I skipped classes. I had fun. I went, went to all the parties. But I was always pretty narrowly focused I'm making sure I got um I had a good job lined up when I got mm-hmm. out. So, you know, the first year the first year I think I ended up working at like the campus store and like Wendy's. So I had two jobs. But I pretty quickly by the second year, I was a research assistant to an e- I was an econ and government major. So I was an assistant to an econ uh professor, a research assistant. And then I I worked at it doesn't exist anymore, but this brokerage firm, Payne Weber, like after my sophomore year. And I literally, it was, uh, my process of self-discovery was, I would literally talk to my professors and be like, what's the best job <laughs> that someone who wants to make money can get when they graduate? Because mm-hmm. I didn't have anyone in my family or my, my network, right, who had a, gone to college or had a real profession. And so my process was, well, investment banking was kind of the thing at the time. And I was, okay, if investment banking is it, what's the best investment bank? And it was Goldman Sachs. So I was like, okay, I'm going to get a job at Goldman Sachs when I graduate. And it probably seemed improbable to, you know, everyone I'm asking these very crude questions, but that's what I did. Hmm. So I went from Payne Weber and, you know, working whatever odd jobs on campus. And then my junior year, I got an internship at Goldman. I ended up getting a full-time job at Goldman when I graduated. And what are you learning when you start at a place like Goldman? What's, what's the beginning look like? It's like a boot camp. Because basically you have a lot of people coming out, different majors. And so they, like English majors, Russian lit majors. So it's like a level setting process where they kind of teach you the the nuts and bolts of finance. And, you know, you don't really do much important investment banking work when you're an analyst or even an associate. You're basically making pitch books, or at least that's what we did when I was an analyst. And so a lot of writing, some number crunching, but really writing and doing support work on deals hmm. but it's a pretty rigorous training process okay um but less 
the specifics and the technical aspects they taught me about finance and investment banking in that program were less important than kind of being in it and feeling like, yeah, I can do this. You know, Mm -hmm. like I'm not going to be, because I was always afraid or worried about, like when I first got to Cornell, I was certainly worried the first year about like being outclassed, right? Like I'm in an Ivy League school and, you know, no one else in my family are going to college. So am I going to make it? And so I just, that first year I just worked really hard. In the first year, I think I was Dean's List, and maybe the second year before I, I did get comfortable <laughs> and took my foot off the gas when I was a junior. And so I got acclimated at Cornell, and like, yeah, this is probably as good as as some of the better people here and better than most. But then when I went to Goldman, it was a similar thing. I was like the first, you know, I don't know how many months. It was like, you know, am I going to get found out? Do I really, can I really make it here? Mm-hmm. And it was- it's like a little bit of imposter syndrome. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think I had that, like, the first two or three times that I went into other spaces that um, just no one in my family or my social network had been into. You have that, and then you kind of figure it out. And then finally you start kind of connecting. Like, all these things, it's getting there and really getting in. That's the hardest part. Mm -hmm. Um, But once you do that, like, I think most people can kind of figure out most things. And so that's what I learned. That was probably the most the biggest impact working at a Goldman had on me. It gave me the confidence that, you know, wherever, wherever I go after this, I'll probably be okay. Mm-hmm. And then when did you go to NYU? Cause the, the, the list gets, it's already impressive. And then it gets like freakishly impressive. Cause you got an MBA in quantitative finance at NYU, a master of real estate development in Columbia. You were on wall street for a decade. Like, yeah. how are you doing all of this? Well, one, well, so after getting into Cornell, like, and actually, I don't even know if this is a good thing, right? Because I think now people think a lot more about what they want out of life and how to align their work and their passions, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So for me at the time, it was a function of, I just never want to be poor again. What do I have to do? And so there are two or three careers that if you went to an Ivy League school, you're either going to be a management consultant, an investment banker, or if you had the appetite for more school, you go back to law school or med school, right? And I didn't have the appetite for more school at the time. Mm-hmm. So it was literally management consulting or investment banking. And they seemed like the same amount of work and investment bankers have more upside. So it was investment banking. So going from Cornell to Goldman, once at Cornell, pretty high probability you land, you know, in finance, right? So that was easy. And then once you're at a Goldman, it was just a process. Like you stay in the analyst program and get promoted to associate or you go back to, to B school. I actually left a little more than a year into Goldman to go to a startup at the absolute worst time. So it's, mm. <laughs> it's uh, 2000, middle of 2000, right before every stock market corrects and right before the first big wipeout in um, startups. The people listening at home can't see. You and I are both cringing, yeah. just like... Oh, it's a time. It's crazy because um, I experienced it firsthand and like all the potential and optimism of internet and startups and, and everything it was going to be. And then by 2001, it was like the internet was a fraud and it's going to go away. But now, 20 years later, it was that and more, right? right. But um, definitely got caught up in that cycle. And so that was kind of my first, after having success, you know, after getting into Cornell and then getting the job that I wanted, that was my first real kind of loss. Mm. Um, and it, it definitely shook me a little bit. And I was like, well, am I ever going to 
you know, I messed up an incredible job and I was watching friends who were still at Goldman or other banks. And I mean, you're so young, you don't appreciate that, whatever you're facing at the time. Like it's going to be minor looking back. Right. So I think for like half a year or a year, I was kind of um, lost in trying to figure it out. But, you know, I was just always good at school. So you cite all the schools I went to, but for me, they're, they're always, they're just like a refuge. That's the one thing that mm. I was good at doing was learning. And so, you know, I was, I wanted to go, I wanted to get my JD MBA at that point. So I, I'd always, it's funny, I always wanted, to, always wanted to go to Stanford. So I applied to law school first because for the JD MBA, you go to law school for a year, then you apply to B school. So I was supposed to go to law school. I did get into Stanford and I just didn't know I was going to afford it because, mm-hmm. you know, I'd left Goldman early and, you know, I maxed out every credit card I had and put all the money that I had at the time, which wasn't a lot, into the startup. Yeah, so it just seemed like it was going to be a struggle. So while kind of figuring out, you know, what law school was going to give me the best package, I saw that NYU had this fellowship program where if you qualified for it, you could go for free. Um, so I was like, look, I'm, I'm going to do that kind of as a safety measure because I don't think I knew at the time that I was going to get into Stanford. So mm-hmm. I did that. I, I got that. I did get into Stanford. And it was like one of the toughest decisions at that time that I had to make because, you know, someone from California – like Stanford, USC, mm-hmm. UCLA, like they stick out in your mind. Yeah. Right? But the money just led me to go to, to B school at NYU because I got a free ride. So back to B school and then back to Wall Street where I had a decent run. And then you brought it home. Yeah. And what, what made you come back to California after this big decade in New York? Mm, you know what? I experienced, um, if you spend 10 years doing something, you definitely, um, you go through some cycles. So immediately out of uh, NYU, when I was working at City, I was a credit default swap trader. So I hate to use terminology, but uh, I was trading derivatives, credit derivatives. And um, that market just blew up. So my first two or three years in the job, we were the epicenter of every the Great Recession, right? So we, we felt it first. So I had a, within that bank, I had a career shift, so from trading credit derivatives to trading foreign exchange. And then I did that for a number of years. But then that market changed too. And mm-hmm. so like I started to pick up on like, look, the world is constantly going to change. And so FX became a place where computers and algorithms were more valuable than human traders. And so I'd always been interested in real estate. And I remember like even as a kid, the people who, even in a poor neighborhood, the people who had, seemed like they had wealth – for people who own land. And then mm-hmm. certainly working on Wall Street, like a lot of the um, really wealthy people I met, even if they didn't generate their wealth from real estate, they invested a lot of it in real estate. Mm-hmm. And then after seeing, you know, how everyone who had a lot of their money in financial markets, how they were impacted by the Great Recession, I was like, you know what? I have to do something where, one, it's tangible, which for someone who got an MBA and, and is trading derivatives, that might sound simplistic, but I was like, I need something tangible. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to do something that is entrepreneurial because my heart of hearts, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur and to build something. But I was like, it has to be something that if I do it right, I can build something really big and it uses everything I've learned to date. So I did. I went back to school maybe probably for the last time and I got that master's in um, real estate development and finance at Columbia. I didn't have a specific plan. Going in, I mean, I figured I'd go work at a private equity fund and then try to do my own thing. Mm-hmm. And again, you have these little moments in 
in life. I told you I probably have three or four, probably a couple more. But while in, in school, I got connected with someone who's now a partner and a great friend, a basketball player at the time named Lou Aldang, incredible guy. And he was, you know, a passionate real estate investor. And we connected. We did something really specific. So I pitched Columbia on a thesis project of creating um, a certificate program in real estate investment for NBA players and entertainers. And they have similar certificates at Harvard and Wharton. So I was like, we should do this and we should base it out of the, the real estate program. And so I work on it for a semester. And then finally, when it's, I think we're going to pull the trigger because it's what I've been focusing on for six months. They didn't want the reputational risk of doing something with entertainers and athletes at the time. So I'm like, well, I spent a lot of time on this curriculum and it works. It makes sense. So what do I do? Mm. And Luol and I had, you know, been talking and, and looking at real estate. So he was like, so what's going to happen with that? And I was like, I don't know. I was like, I have a curriculum. I can teach it. I have professors who help me teach it. But now I don't have a sponsor. And so he was like, well, I'll help y'all do it. And mm-hmm. so he was going to underwrite it and he was going to get players to come. But as we started talking about it, the NBA, the Players Association for the NBA, they heard about it. And they were like, if you can do this, then we'll, we'll provide you the players. We'll make it part of our educational curriculum, you know, this summer. And so we did that. And that opened up a whole new world to me. And Luan wow. and I, you know, five years later, we're partners and we've, you know, done $150 million in deals together. So that was a, that was a game changer, that relationship. And it led to, so it's a long-winded story, but it led to an opportunity with, you know, a prominent entertainment family to come back to LA and help start a family office for them. So that's cool. the opportunity that brought me back to LA. Very cool. Yeah. Does that, all of what you learned in all of those programs and that experience, and especially with the real estate development, has that impacted your philosophy on the power of ownership when you when you think about, as you mentioned, like how important it is in communities like South Central for people to own property, what you guys are doing with Vector 90. And in one of the Forbes articles that I read about everything that, that you and Nipsey started, this quote jumped out to me that, Ownership is a critical component of setting the structural stage for a community to thrive. And I was like, yeah. And again, it is one of those things that nobody really talks to us about. And especially nobody talks to people who are becoming whatever version of successful at a young age. And I'm going to compound that with saying nobody talks to women about it, about finance, about ownership. So I'm curious – when you came back to LA and you started reconciling these worlds, were you already thinking about ownership in terms of real estate at that point? Well, I was thinking about ownership in terms of real estate, just from the purely kind of the purely academic and financial side of it, Mm -hmm. like what it meant, right. To own something tangible. I'll be honest. I did not come back to LA with the plans of reconciling all of my different experiences and all these worlds. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard to really explain to, to people how, because I had my older brother who, you know, was alive when I left LA and I have a number of siblings who were born after I left who I had never lived with, mm-hmm. but they grew up, they were born in either South Central or Inglewood. Um, so they lived a very LA lifestyle, but it's hard to explain how 
you know, when I was working on Wall Street, I was tunnel vision, just focused on trying to to survive or thrive in that world. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though I had obviously deep connections because I had family in LA, I didn't have a visceral feel for what life was like in a South Central LA or Inglewood at that point. Mm-hmm. And so coming back, I didn't come back thinking, you know, hey, I, I, I never wanted to be an activist or a never thought of myself as a philanthropist or impact investor. You know, I came back pursuing a great opportunity. Right. And obviously I was excited to live close to siblings I never lived with, you know, prior to my life. And so that was the anticipation and excitement. Mm-hmm. But it was coming back and getting the visceral shock of, you know, when I went back to the house that I lived at, you know, on 51st in Vermont as a kid. And maybe to someone in L.A. who experienced every moment of it, maybe they felt change. But I didn't see any change. Certainly not any relative change to Santa Monica or, or Beverly Hills. Like when I first came back, you know, I, I lived in Santa Monica. And I was like, it's, it's like it's frozen in time. And there's definitely like a two-tier, maybe more tiers, but it's definitely a two-tier kind of society. And that, mm-hmm. having that visceral shock is what led me to start thinking about, okay, this is something that I have to focus on. Because as someone who came from there, I hadn't really thought about it or spent any time on it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, so there are people who just, one, who don't know. They don't even have an exposure or way to know. And so because I do know and I do have exposure, like if I don't focus on it, like how is it? realistic that someone else will and that's what made me start thinking about right what would eventually become vector 90 yeah because it's personal to you and you have the touch points and you realize how easy it is for all of us by the way like whatever the circumstance whatever the career path to be focused on what we're doing and if we don't make a change where we see a need for change who who will there's something you said before we started recording um and we were talking specifically about kids and you were like you don't know what you don't know, but even for adults, right? Mm-hmm. You don't know what you don't know. And so it would be difficult for someone who doesn't come from, you know, come from an environment like a Compton, Inglewood, Ingle, South Central Watts to, mm-hmm. to really have a feel for it or appreciate mm-hmm. it, understand it. And that's, how would they, you know? Yeah. Um, so it works both ways. You know, mm-hmm. you, you don't know what you don't know in both, both kind of environments. Yeah. I mean, I think about it. Again, we talked about this before we started, but how lucky, in hindsight, I understand how lucky I was to grow up the daughter of an immigrant in my dad and the daughter of a first-generation American in my mom. My mom's mom came here through Ellis Island, you know, had to sign sign in the book the whole thing. And I remember helping my dad study for his citizenship test when I was 12. Like, I was making flashcards. And it was like, is he going to get it, you know? And... And the kind of community I grew up in because of my dad's work and how, you know, queer and diverse in both race and gender it was. And I I was lucky to grow up with a family who loved everybody. And I think now understanding what I do, having lived where I've lived, having built the kind of community that I'm surrounded by, I think about how little I knew. Like I grew up riding horses in Burbank And I would always hear about the Compton Cowboys. And I was like, how cool. Like, I'm learning to be a cowgirl and there's cowboys in Compton. And I went to USC and I lived on 29th and Hoover. And 
I was really clueless. I was kind of like, isn't LA amazing? Look at all these amazing people who live together and work together and like nobody was together. The amount of segregation and separation and economic disparity and and the generational holding back yeah. especially as we're as, as this conversation pertains to finance the holding back financially of people of color around America but you see it so starkly in this city yeah. when you move neighborhood to neighborhood i was like you know they say ignorance is bliss i was blissfully unaware i just was like i love living in a city that's a melting pot like yeah. i didn't know and and i lived in the middle of it forever and and so I think too in my own way about how as you age and you you choose to learn the way you're able to see things that you you just didn't see yeah. before. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a proactive uh it's a proactive decision to go and like learn and explore. Mm-hmm. Because literally I um I was a question I spent asking myself the the greater part of 2016 is how did I not like how did I not spend time thinking about this you know mm. for the past 20 years you know and there's definitely guilt basically because I, I did know you know I started off there and it's not like it wouldn't have been rational to assume that the world just changed when I left and mm-hmm. so I was like you, you just get lost in your da- your daily life um and you don't think about you know the greater or, or beyond yourself well and besides just being lost I also think I don't know if if all this learning and exposure and and proactive choice to you know embed with other activists and other people who want to change the world it it's actually made me feel so much more tenderness and I've always been like a pretty tender-hearted I was a tender-hearted kid but I feel so much more tenderness for people because look, like we only have so much bandwidth yeah. and we're just these tiny humans trying to figure it out. And, you know, you moved to Texas and you were navigating your life with your great aunt and you were learning and, and you were expanding and diving into the world of all these books and becoming an athlete. And like you deserve to do that. We all deserve to do that. I I can't help but think about it. And I wonder what what your thoughts are on it. I can't help but think about how society really does its best to keep us civically unengaged, to keep us not thinking in terms of community. You know, how often have we heard like, it's every man for himself. It's a rat race. You know, these industries are cutthroat. It's like, we use these horrible analogies, like to say it's cutthroat, like that's literally an analogy for murder. (laughs) And and we're just like, yeah, sleep when you're dead. It's like, actually, no, if you don't sleep, you'll die. You know, We glorify really weird shit. And then I think it's only when we get a little further on the road of life where we go, wait, what are, what are we all doing? Yeah. And, and what I will say is, you know, not everybody sees something at a point in their life and then chooses to tailor their life around addressing it. A lot of people go, oh, that's unfortunate. Well, someone's in charge. Like there's, some, yeah. you know, there's somebody running this. It's like, well, really, well, if we've learned anything from 2016, there really isn't. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I guess I say all of that only to say I, I hear it. I hear you. But also look what you're doing. And I, I don't know. I think it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I appreciate that. But it even, so I will say the, um, so when I started working on Vector 90, like it was a, it was a function of just this um, realization and this appreciation for like, you know, 
man, there's a whole world out there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I did think back to all those little, like when I first went to Texas, like I hated it. Right. And, and mm-hmm. now I, I, now I can articulate like a genuine appreciation for everything about my grandmother. But while I was there, like a part of me always wanted to get away. Mm-hmm. Um, and I look back and I'm like, man, I had these things that I didn't appreciate these little breaks that I got, um, and how they're connected. And that those were, that was my chance and it could have been anyone else. Right. Or I just think if I didn't have any of that, what would I have been? And it's personal for me because, you know, as much time as I spent in school, I have an older brother and he's probably been incarcerated for that same amount of time. Mm. And there was a point in time when our lives were perfectly, you know, they were this perfect overlap mm. um, and the divergence over time has just been painful to, to watch and feel. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's, there's a spectrum between he and I, but had I stayed in South Central, my life would probably be much more like his, right? Mm-hmm. And not just cherry picking his story, but, you know, have a younger brother who I, I didn't live with growing up. He was born after I left, but I got really close with him when I came back because he was, he was young, dynamic, he's he's a rapper and he had his clothing line. And so everything that he saw me doing, he thought was really cool. And uh, we were, he was old enough for me to like enjoy hanging out with him. Mm -hmm. Um, but also being kind of a, a parental figure to him. We spent a lot of time together and he worked with me and appreciating. So as I got to look at his life and like how, you know, his kind of the focus growth and learning and in self-investment kind of stopped at 18 for him when he graduated from high school hmm. and he didn't go to college. And like, that was kind of the, after that he was kind of out in the world trying to figure it out. And so we were working on that together and kind of July of 2017, he was in a gang, July of 2017, he was murdered. And so. I'm sorry. And so it brought home for me again. So when I was like, how was I with him? You know, almost every day for the past year and a half, and I didn't appreciate, I didn't appreciate the, how treacherous his life was and the dangers that he faced every day. And, and had I really been tapped in or focused on that, I certainly could have just grabbed him and taken him out of that, that situation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just made me think more fully about his life, you know, compared to mine. Because um, being, being someone who, who was born in South Central when I was and getting to an Ivy League school, it was an outlier. And it's probably still an outlier. And I think that 30 years has passed and it's still equally unlikely. Mm. But being from South Central and joining a gang back then wasn't an outlier. And you would think 30 years later it now would be, but it's not. It's it's exactly the same and probably more likely. And then, you know, you're more likely to be born in one of those in Compton, South Central, Inglewood, you know, the south side of Chicago, you pick a city and end up in a gang as in, end up going to a good college. And I was like, that's, there's something wrong. As a mm-hmm. as a society where you know we're the wealthiest country in the world, and we're just okay with this. There are a lot of things like that, homelessness, whatever. But we're just, we either tacitly or kind of overtly we're like, well, it's every man for himself. But we make the decision that these mm-hmm. things are okay. And so at that point, you know, I was already working on Vector ninety, and I was already you know really focused on stuff in in South Central and, and thinking about broader impact, but. When he got killed, his name was Sean. I was like, now I have to shift my life. Like you spend most of your time, it's unfortunate, you spend most of your time working. So I was like, I have to find a way that 
the thing that I'm doing with most of my time is addressing, you know, the part of the world that I understand and I know mm -hmm. um, that I can try to make an impact. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, I just kind of went all in on, you know, whatever it is that you, <laughs> I don't even know how to describe everything that I'm doing at times, but just very, um, very direct, high impact ways mm -hmm. to, to touch people at the community level. Yeah. So it's, it's all been personal experience that's led me not some grand plan or, or scheme. But it strikes me, look, personal experience is what can change everything for us. Like, you think back to the Supreme Court battle over gay marriage, and the data showed that overwhelmingly, if people knew one gay person, they would support gay marriage, no matter where they were from, yeah. their religious background, no matter what. So whether it's that data point or any other, if we have a touch point to something that personalizes an issue, it doesn't feel like an issue anymore. It feels real. And, and I think that's part of the problem, as you, as you mentioned, when we think about homelessness in a state like California, you, you, you've kind of been taught to look and think, oh, that's horrible, but it isn't personal. You don't know what to do. And then there's all of this sort of subconscious layer of bias or representation and you think well those people did something wrong or they're all drug addicts or we're not looking at the system yeah. we're not looking at a feedback loop which as you mentioned means that over a 30-year period the the likelihood of kids winding up in gangs is not decreasing yeah. that's a that's a big fat red flag that society is doing something wrong that we're not investing properly we're not supporting communities properly I think when when there's a when there's a feedback loop like that, it's a hamster wheel. It's impossible to yeah. get off. Something has to intervene and stop the wheel. Yeah. And that's why I think what you guys are doing, when you say like I don't even know how to explain all of this, it's because it's monumental. Like yeah. I, I look at what you're doing with Vector Ninety, and with our community, and with all of these initiatives as this enormous spherical. Like it's not a it's not a pitch on a piece of paper. Yeah. You've built something that functions like a globe, like, and it's all interconnected and it's all working and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger in its impact. And you've, you've put a wrench in the wheel and now you get to do something else for the people who've been on it. It's pretty fucking incredible. No, then when you, I should let you describe it for me, explain <laughs> yeah. it to people when I go talk to people. But everything you were saying prior to that point, I mean, that speaks to, to me, it speaks to the heart of a lot of the issues that we have. I mean, talking about homelessness or talking about um, kind of wealth and income gaps and mm -hmm. how some people, you know, just live tough lives their entire life. We've been conditioned as part of the American ethos, right? Capitalism and mm -hmm. the ability to build yourself up, pull yourself up by the bootstrap. And I think at the core of it, it's a good thing, right? Because it's supposed to be anything is possible. But to integrate that so we don't feel this this dissonance when we see people who don't have or who who you know are homeless or underprivileged we process it like it's whatever the situation is it's the outcome of some set of decisions mm -hmm. um, that they made or things they didn't do but it was a it was a fair and rational process that got them there mm -hmm. so that makes it okay otherwise you would hurt you would you would hurt a lot all the time if you mm -hmm. saw homeless kids or or you know there were people who were in hunger in every city, in every, you know, a lot of neighborhoods in this country, mm -hmm. and, and you would feel compelled to do something, right? And so I think it's just a collective 
it's a collective coping mechanism to think that whenever you see someone, yes. that their life is, you know, based on the decisions they made. Mm-hmm. And you don't think that they're unfair systems or structures that impact people differently, mm-hmm. right? We're um, not addressing the reality that some people have boots yeah. to pull the straps up on and some people have never gotten them. Yeah. It's not a level playing field. Yeah. And it's um and so then realizing that, right? And it's and it's a process of unlearning because you're taught that as a kid. You're taught that um I remember so like when I was younger, like anyone who wants to have a job has a job. And mm. you know, yeah, just um, I, I had an uncle in Texas, and he was like, "Well, people pull their pants up and didn't and stop listening to that rap, and and you know didn't use slang, but that's that's kind of the mentality that you embrace." And so you look at someone, and you're like, "Well, no, if they just did these things differently, then." But now that I I spent years trying to understand finance and economics and business, mm-hmm. and, and like it's inescapable that there are just when you're born on the downside of advantage in a world like ours, mm-hmm. it's self-perpetuating. When you're born on the upside, it's it's self-perpetuating. And you're kind of born within, you know, kind of a bandwidth that you can go up or down a little bit. But it's really hard to break through unless you have some, like me, it took six improbable things to happen, you know, mm-hmm. for me to like chart a course that's very different than, you know, a lot of my immediate family. So, yeah, so that appreciating that and understanding it, yeah, it's it's informed the things that we're doing where we're, we're really trying to like, it sounds weird that we're trying to be so direct and grassroots that we want to have large scale impact, but that's how I think things will work because there are a mm-hmm. lot of impressionistic ideas about change that never kind of trickle down. Yep. So it was important for, for us when we were doing it to go and kind of be in the community and be mm-hmm. present and starting off with reaching just people who came in our space, yeah. right? And kind of planting seeds that could change mindsets and then hopefully change our, our broader kind of culture in inner cities mm-hmm. if we took it from inner city to inner city. I love that I read something in a lot of the research I've done about the work you guys are doing. I read something that said it's not for the people, it's with the people. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that gives me chills because it also makes me think of how we as a country could move forward. This this whole by the people for the people, it's like, well, it's not really working. So what if it was with the people? Yeah. And it's it's it was an acknowledgement on our part that we didn't have it all figured out. <laughs> like yeah. I mean, that's um it's very presumptive. We're like, hey, we're gonna go and do this, we're gonna go and give this thing to you or do it for you, because that presumes that we know mm-hmm. what it should be when really, you know, arriving at starting a co-working space and, and small business incubator mm-hmm. in an industrial warehouse in the Crenshaw district that wasn't a linear process of it was like literally we were like we have to do something that's sustainable right yeah so something that can keep going even if you know Nipsey got busy and and took off as a superstar and couldn't come as frequently and if my life changed let's not start something that um Mm -hmm. can be taken away right so how do we start a business that has impact and all we really cared about, not not even making money, but if it could pay for itself and pay for the staff, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So something self like sustainable impact. Can you walk the people listening who maybe don't know about Vector 90 and about the initiative? Can you kind of give us an overview of what it is? Because you mentioned that you took over this warehouse. H- How did you make the decision and, and what's it meant to be? Yeah. So one, it was kind of connecting threads in my life. 
So I'm focused on real estate. And so I wanted to be something that I could really be hands-on and involved with and passionate about. So I wanted to find something real estate related that had the intersection of like community impact. And so I went down, I had a few different ideas, but I figured to make an impact in the community had to be something, had to be a physical space in the community. Mm-hmm. So having a physical space and being present, I think just means a lot. It's symbolic, but it, it really, yeah, it really touches people. And community is um, about gathering. And, and that's not just in inner cities anywhere. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. being fully present and having something, having a place where people can go and feel secure and, and they know is there. It's a comforting thing. So I arrived at real estate and I was like, okay, what's something that we can do in real estate? And I wanted it to be, so we start off with these impressionistic terms. We wanted it to be like a cultural hub and a social hub and an intellectual hub where people could come and learn and share. So literally, yeah, like I was like, we'll start a basically a WeWork, but in place-based and not place-based because it's just for the community. Mm-hmm. It's it's open to anyone who will come there, but it had to be placed there because people in our in the community aren't going to go to Santa Monica mm-hmm. or West Hollywood to go to WeWork. One, it's economically prohibitive, geographically prohibitive, and then kind of culturally and socially, it doesn't feel mm-hmm. um, as inclusive. And I'm not saying it's by design or intent, but to the community we were talking to, they didn't think those spaces were for them. So mm-hmm. we're like, we're going to create a space here for everyone, but you know it's for you because it's in, in your own backyard. Mm-hmm. So we started with the, the concept of co-working and then with the plan to incubate, you know, entrepreneurs and, and small businesses that came to the space. And um, how does that work, the incubation part? Because let's say, just for easy math for me, there's 10 offices yeah. and you get you know, and then 10 desks. So you've got like 10 companies and a rotating group of anywhere from 10 to 20 local entrepreneurs in the community. So you've got 20 to 30 businesses, let's say. How do you determine who you're going to incubate out of those businesses? Does everyone have the opportunity to apply or request mentorship? How does that work? Yeah. So our, our, so we pivoted. So our initial conception was that we would, um, we would, partner with, we would partner with an established incubator that would help us with the filtering process and the structure. Mm. But then Nipsey and I would go and raise capital from kind of our sphere of influence. So people similar to Nipsey that were, you know, had the hearts of the community. And so we have a traditional incubator where we take six to 10 companies and, and expose them to a systematic process of, of education, growth, opening up networks and helping with capital. What we discovered you know, in the first six months was that one, we had to educate the the community about what co-working was and what it wasn't. And then a lot of the entrepreneurs or companies that came, there were some kind of gaps, kind of gaps in where they were relative to where, you know, a, a startup or a, an entrepreneur who's going to WeWork in Santa Monica, where they would be in terms of their process. Mm-hmm. And so we spent the first six months to a year being very hands-on at just the human level with the people who came in. And so it wasn't as scalable as we thought. And so we were like, you know what, we need to, uh, we need to step back and be more broad-based and just start with programming and educational curriculum that fills mm. some of those gaps so that, you know, we can ultimately have entrepreneurs and small businesses coming out of our space that have a complete deck. They have, you know, a crystallized, vision of what their product is and they can articulate it. Yeah. So we had to abstract a little bit and start at a more foundational level mm-hmm. than incubation. And so 
programming and content is our focus now. Um, educational inputs into the business process. Mm. That's very cool. Yeah. Because again, when you talk about, when you were talking about the difference between people from the community having to travel as it's prohibitive, but having to travel to West Hollywood or Santa Monica, one of the things that it makes me think about is how in the sprawl of America and certainly in the microcosm of California, LA, you have these deserts. We And you hear yeah. a lot about food deserts. But there are opportunity deserts. There, there are there are spaces in our cities that have not been supported with the resources, yeah. and then these gaps come up. And it's really cool to hear about you guys being light enough on your feet that you could pivot to then say, "Oh, before we do this big goal, what we're going to do is actually just turn on an access tap yeah. to information and and support, so that we can start filling in some of the holes yeah. in in what has been." a desert in this arena. No, and w- without knowing it, you've kind of touched upon kind of one of the biggest learnings where we got started. So b- because because Nipsey was a big draw. So people from outside the community would come mm. to the space, which was great because we wanted that kind of cross-pollination. Mm-hmm. Um, people would come and once they got to the space, there's just, the, there wasn't a lot around the space, right? So mm. people need a third place between home and work. We all have things during the day. We go to the gym. We go to our favorite coffee shop or cafe to kind of break up the monotony and the feel. But they were just little around us. And so there were people who were were dynamic, entrepreneurs and startups that would come. But it wasn't practical for them to base themselves there because it would be hard to take meetings or attract other people to come and, and spend a lot of time. The food desert thing is real. Just, you know, day-to-day feedback. You know, I want, I want to be able to go to the gym. And it's hard for me to go to the gym here. So unfortunately, I'm, I'm going to go work out of a different space. So then we were like, we're just going to create the ecosystem, like a, of a self-supporting ecosystem kind of in this uh, compound. Yeah. And so a gym concept was always something we, we thought about and talked about. But we decided to go with a social space first that mm. during the day would act as a juice bar and coffee shop. But then at night could be more social. So you could go and you could watch a Lakers game mm-hmm. or in a, you know, in an environment where you felt comfortable with everyone that was around you, you could have, you know, drinks and just kind of relax and, and be outside of work. Mm-hmm. And so we had this Soho house concept and I, and I hate appropriating like Soho house and we work, but it's a, but it's good to have something yeah, relative to compare point. it to. So it's, um, it's a, it's a social membership club. It's we're doing at a really high level, right. And, and, in the neighborhood adjacent to, to Vector 90. Um, we're excited about it. So a lot of plans got put on hold after Nipsey died, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And uh, we even shut the space down for a few months. We opened back up into the summer, middle of the summer. And, you know, we finally kind of gotten back on track and executing some of the, the vision that we had. And so I'm, I'll be happy to walk you around the space um, at the end of this month when the social concept is complete. And I'm really proud of what we're doing there. And then after that, we're going to transition on to the gym concept. Mm -hmm. Um, So we'll have the co-working space and go ahead. So we have the co-working space. We did open up, we opened a podcast studio before, um, before starting on the social club concept. And after that, we'll do a gym. And then um, I think we'll probably take a break and, and see how it's all working together Mm -hmm. and get feedback. And then um, really building on content. Um, and programming. 
And that's so cool too, because so many startups, so many businesses don't give themselves, whether it's the founders not thinking about it or them feeling too pressured by their investors. So many companies that are being birthed don't have the bandwidth or the leeway to test and then adjust and to add in order to service the bigger final vision. And it's so cool that you guys are able to do that. Can you talk to me a little bit about, you know, there's a couple of initiatives that I want to get into for people listening. I want you to tell people about our opportunity, the the concept of own our own. Yeah. And a little bit about opportunity zones. Okay. So I'd Just say, a few casual things. For yeah, for sure. <laughs> so I'd say Vector 90 and our opportunity and even own our own, they're all part of the same concept. Yeah. Um, it's a big, under a, one big umbrella. Yeah. We just had to have a, it's a nebulous, impressionistic thing we're trying to do. And like, I keep saying the same things we want to find, you know, we want to find things that work like at mm-hmm. the community level. And then the ones that are working and have an impact, then replicate and scale. So we had to have a start, right? And so I was like, we can't just go and say we're going to be an impact-oriented thing. So let's start with a co-working space and create it and we'll react. Mm-hmm. We'll react to the reactions and then we'll learn and grow from there. But it was always with this, you know, more grandiose vision. And so we started with the space. And then after opening Vector 90, we had the chance to, to buy the Marathon store, um, which, you know, was symbolically important, but it was just really meaningful because they'd been tenants in that space for 10 years. And they started with mm-hmm. once they started selling t-shirts outside of, of the store and then got a stall and then took over the entire thing. And, and they were, they were incredible tenants. And it's funny when we bought it from the, the seller, it mm-hmm. was like, you know, you guys are never late. It was like, you guys changed this entire kind of intersection mm-hmm. based on what you've done. So seeing how important, I mean, it was really important to nip um, and it was profound for me to be a part uh, of that because it was such a big part of his brand. Mm-hmm. But seeing how it reverberated with everyone around, we were like, yeah. look, owning the land under something is is important. And in communities like this where, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, you have kids who are born enjoying gangs and they die for these blocks that they don't even own. I was like, we have to, we wanted to teach and encourage people to to start, you know, owning part of their communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just became this bigger thing that we were talking and thinking about where, you know, us doing it in South Central, it's great, but that doesn't make the the kind of universal shift that we want to achieve in kind of inner city culture. So we were like, we have to get the Nipsey of Philadelphia and Chicago and, and mm-hmm. Miami to partner with and do the same thing. Yes. That's still not going to be enough investment, just this group, but it's a model or it's something mm-hmm. that people can replicate and model themselves after. Yes, and you can begin to get people thinking differently. Yeah. I spent four years living in Chicago, and I moved into a neighborhood there right when I got there, and people were like, you can't live there. You're crazy. What Where are you it? doing? I was in the West Loop, and I was yeah. on the west side of the West Loop. Yeah. And it was really crazy in the past seven years to see my neighborhood turn over. Yeah. The Soho House moved in. All these things started to happen. I mean, there were like I a think couple of stay. restaurants. I think there's a Virgin Hotel near the West Loop. Yeah, there I, is. I, I, yep, I yeah, it's there. more yeah. River North, but okay. it's close. And 
Stephanie Izzard, who's like a big female chef who won one of the cooking shows. This is embarrassing that I don't know this. Don't judge me. Um, this is where my dyslexia comes in. And I'm like, chopped or iron chef or I don't know. Is She cuts things. She's amazing. But she had moved her restaurant in there and yeah. she started buying up the neighborhood. And yeah. she opened her restaurant and then she opened a diner and then she bought the spot next door and opened a bakery. And then she bought a That's spot awesome. three blocks away and opened another place. She's amazing. Stephanie's a radical. Stephanie's a radical. She's a, she's a baller. And for a female chef, I was just yeah. like, you go. But the neighborhood has really transitioned and all my local spots like Olympia Meats and all, all these little places that were like, I used to go to this produce spot next to the La Colombe coffee and all of them got priced out. Yeah. But there's one family, these, and like they, they speak to my mom's side of the family. They're, they're this great Italian deli. JP Graziano's makes my favorite sub sandwich in Chicago and the Grazianos bought their building back in, I think, right. the 80s. And they are the only local family business that hasn't been priced out of the neighborhood. Yeah. And it's so – it was a wild thing to watch everything change. Yeah. And it is. It, it, it's made me think about how I wish I'd started learning about this stuff when I was 22. Right. And if you can start moving into spaces and and – encouraging a whole new version of what it means to be in a neighborhood, what it means to, to rep your neighborhood. Yeah. You know, you think about how so many of the cities, LA, Chicago, Philly, that you talk about, there's city pride. Yeah. And part of loving your block is for it to be yours. And so, yeah, you, I mean, again, I couldn't say it better. So it's having people connected through ownership and then mm-hmm. even if it wasn't direct ownership, but knowing so the reason why the the all of LA loved it, but the reason why in South Central he's so beloved is because as he became a superstar, you know, he kept the marathon store there. He mm-hmm. he employed people directly from the neighborhood. The people who came to the store, you know, they were treated with respect and they yeah. were served. I mean, the store was really cool. You know, it was very um I think he always said he created the first smart store, which he did with a lot of cool um tech elements to it. But he created something that, you know, if you throw a rock in any direction around the store, it's like fried chicken, fast food, pawn shops, payday loan places. So mm-hmm. he, he created something that was out of place in the neighborhood. And we were like, well, this shouldn't be out of place because if you would do it and I would do it, um, there are other people that would do it. We just have yeah. to make them know that it's possible. And, and that, offer them support yeah. to do so. And, here, and the crazy thing was he, so the marathon clothing is, is premium priced. Right. And people were, were glad to come and pay it. And when they weren't shopping there, they were going to, you know, Fairfax to shop or going downtown or to the west side to shop. And mm-hmm. so there's the demand on the side of on the part of the community. And so we're like, look, we have to demonstrate that, you know, these businesses will work or quality, thoughtful things will work here. Mm-hmm. And um, we're not seeing it. And again, I I don't think it's malicious on the part of the people who own and develop in inner cities, right? I think it's, you have some guy who buys a building, he's a doctor in, you know, he's a doctor in Calabasas and he gets shown an investment and, you know, it's in a retail center. He's going to get a check every month. He's not proactively making a statement about what he wants to see in the neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. He's but not he, cultivating he's an not experience. Yeah. He's just investing. And that's not even, on, that's not even the onus of an investor, right? Yeah. But it's just that in these neighborhoods, where the legacy of development has been so poor, mm-hmm. it it sustains inertia and it's a bad inertia, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so it takes someone who 
is connected and who does care and who wants to see something different to like create that new that new thing mm-hmm. and that's what we were trying to start um and mm-hmm. so that's what our opportunity was it became you know, the real estate under everything being so important so mm-hmm. you know our strategy and structure was to start each of these cities with a vector 90 and then invest and acquire around it yeah. so we actually have you know we actually have roots planted in the community and they see that we're going to be there and it's going to be a real enduring relationship partnering with people from you know there are 15 kind of core inner cities in this country that if you could impact all of them, like you would really have ubiquity and in, mm. in kind of the culture that we we're trying to impact. So that was a strategy and it was dual fold. One is figuring out how do we educate and share and teach, mm-hmm. you know, the things that I learned through, you know, going to three schools and a lifetime of working in finance and the things that NIP had learned by radical entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there had to be a a skin in the game component where we're not just talking and saying, and we don't just have a, a nonprofit. We want to be frontline, kind of active in this. And so that's what Own Our Own was, mm-hmm. where we were raising a fund to go and actually do this and to give people. I think one cool one cool aspect of Own Our Own is we're crowdfunding from these communities mm-hmm. so that whatever we're investing in, the intent was to let them and, and invest alongside us. So again, mm-hmm. that doing it with the community. Um, and that's the most extreme version of it. So our opportunity, I think, is the, is the umbrella concept. And then Vector90 is a specific manifestation of it. And Own Our Own is a manifestation of it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, feet planted shoulder to shoulder with the community, finding ways to create economic opportunity in, in these cities. And letting people buy into that investment fund yeah. for dollar amounts that normally would not be taken by a bank. Yeah. You know, if you if you take a check from someone in the community for $1,000 to let them buy into a real estate endeavor, that's not an opportunity people yeah. generally have. Yeah. It's harder. It's more work. And, it's, and mm-hmm. I, I'd say it's just the way the um, – it's actually the way that every kind of – Every investment body that protects investors is set up. It's more scrutiny. It's more compliance. It's more record, reporting mm-hmm. if you have smaller investors in it. So it's like even people who would typically want to, I don't think most people would care whether they're taking mom and pop dollars or not if it wasn't more work and right. ultimately more money to like support that. But it is just, uh, you know, there are more hurdles to it. Mm-hmm. But with everything that we're trying to do, it wouldn't make sense if we didn't do that. It wouldn't be we'd be straying slightly from the mission if right. we didn't say, you know, come and own part of this. We're telling you to go and buy back the block, but if we don't give you a chance to do it with us, it's a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. And again, it may not be easy, but it's right. Yeah. And I think we have to start moving into an era where all business shifts that way, where the way we each operate in the world shifts that way. Yeah. And maybe it requires a little more work or a little more thought, yeah. but it has the potential to change the world around us, not just our world as an individual. That feels exciting to me. And when you set a precedent, you prove that it's possible. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I'm optimistic about, because I see that in so many different verticals and so many different parts of life where people are awakening to, we have to find new modes of thinking and new ways of even doing business. Um, Right. I think the, uh, Larry Fink was the CEO of, of, BlackRock, he came out and he, you know, he had a pretty radical message for corporate America. And he was like, you know, 
we have a responsibility to the greater good and to communities and not just the shareholders, not just the bottom line. Mm-hmm. And going forward, I mean, they're one of the, they're the largest asset managers in the world. We're going to invest with that in mind. And so it, it's telling that, you know, a titan of capital, because there have always been ESG investors and impact investors and green investors who've been fighting a good fight. So to have someone who at the margin, you know, is a difference maker, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's very, it's heartening to see that the world is, I think the next 20 years is going to be, you know, people incorporating impact in everything they do. Mm-hmm. And I am excited that we're in a very specific part of where we're, inter, we're inner city focused, we're inner city based. And I, whenever we, we share what we're doing and we would talk to people, and now I go city to city and talk to people, it's awesome to get the feedback that people have wanted this. They wanted to participate in improving their communities, investing mm-hmm. in it, and making an impact and difference, not just for themselves, but for people around them. So yeah. it's uh, yeah, it's very um, heartening. For people listening who might be in a community that you're not coming to next, but who want to build something, is there advice that you would give them to get started? Yes. So I think that the, the few things that um, I've taken away from our experience is you don't have to have it all figured out. Um, you don't have to know everything to make change because we didn't have it all figured out, do not have it all figured out. Um, and this isn't being cute because I'm on your show, but it's very much a work in progress, everything we're doing. And anyone who doesn't think that about what they're doing, um, it's a limiting view to think, you know, you're at the the be all end all or the, the fullest evolution of whatever it could be. Mm-hmm. So not starting and welcoming input and feedback from others um, and seeking out help are some of the main things because we we just learned a lot. We learned a lot from really engaging with the community and, and, and incorporating that. So one, starting wherever you are. It's been my experience that almost anyone, when you ask for help, they will try to help in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people don't like to ask for help. They view it as a sign of maybe not weakness, but um, maybe it's a fear that people won't help. Maybe they think it's a sign of, of weakness, but a combination of things. But most people will help especially mm-hmm. if they see you're genuine in whatever you're doing and that it, it could do good for others around you. So those, those are some of the things I'd highlight for anyone who wants to do something in their community. And hopefully what we're doing can serve as a model for other people to, and wherever they are, to copy some mm-hmm. element of it. And can you tell me about the investor challenge? Sure. So I used to do this thing on social media called Market Mondays where people would send me questions and I try to respond to as many of them as possible. And it, it went from being, I'd have a couple dozen questions um, every Monday to it got to a point where I had, you know, hundreds. And so it just showed me the demand to, to really understand investing, economics, capital markets from, you know, people who had no exposure and, and people who you wouldn't typically think of as being investors or, or mm-hmm. caring. It was um, overwhelming. And I was like, wow, there's there's an opportunity here to, to kind of teach. And so it was supposed to be this kind of one-off thing I did. So I said, it, the first hundred people who go and open an investment account, we're going to seed it with a hundred bucks to facilitate your first trade. The intent and the, the hope being that of that hundred people, some fraction of them will get into the idea of following the markets and the concept of consistently saving whatever they could and seeing it grow over time. So we did that. And then we gave away a hundred bucks to a hundred people and it happened in 24 hours. And then it was very cool that 
once we did it, other people started reaching out saying that, hey, I'll, you know, how much did it cost to fund, you know, 100 accounts? And so it was like 12,500 bucks after wire fees were included. And so we got so many incoming inquiries. We we're like, well, now we have to stop and figure out a responsible way to take money from other people to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we set up a 501c3 just geared towards this. But, you know, it's, the idea was always expanding the curriculum and, and financial literacy and mm-hmm. f- basics of finance programming. But it jumpstarted it, right? And so we had to stop and set up structures and systems. And now we're working with um, there's a large asset manager in L.A., that reached out and they're like, well, how can we support? We want to give money, but can we be more additive? And we were like, actually, yeah. <laughs> like, There's a lot of educational curriculum and content that'll be helpful for mm-hmm. you know someone else to do so we can focus on the core we're doing. So now it's become, it's become this, this thing that can be scaled and it will be scaled and it'll reach a lot of people. That's um, so cool. Yeah. How do people listening who want to download or access that curriculum, where do they go? I would say go to ouropportunity.com mm-hmm. and leave your email address. Okay. And once um, we're a few weeks away from from our kind of finance 101 course, and then it's going to cool. be layers on top of that. So providing the information there will we'll remain connected. That's exciting. Yeah. Going forward, you, you know, you've got so much you're working on and so many incredible initiatives and everything is so centered on community and empowerment. But there's obviously this big gaping hole with the loss of Nipsey. How, how moving forward do you look at the impact and figure out where to put that emotion to keep driving the marathon along? Yeah, you know what? We, um, so I've been thinking a lot about that recently because we, as we were, com- as we were completing the acquisition of the marathon store and we were, you know, beginning to launch our opportunity. And this is the end of 2018 going into 2019. Actually, interesting story. So we, we shot a documentary around the concept. Um, mm-hmm. So not just the act of us acquiring the marathon store, but we really shot, a, you know, end up being a really moving piece because a lot of it was about what Nip's life meant to, meant to the community, like how he was um, a symbol of opportunity and inspiration. And then kind of sharing, you know, our plans moving forward. Mm-hmm. We wanted this to be a call to action. So we were starting this at the beginning of last year. We actually got the rough cut of the documentary on March 15th. Mm-hmm. And so I was traveling through the end of the month. And then obviously he, he died. So we never got to connect and kind of go over it. But everything I put on hold after he died, I mean, it's just no one was thinking about, you know, business as usual. And like I said, we shut down Vector 90. We didn't even look at the documentary. We put plans for the own our own fund on hold. The opportunity launch, we put it on hold. And the people who are close to, obviously, his family, his lifelong friends who helped build his businesses, the hurt's never going to go away. Mm -hmm. I think it'll be years and years before it's not acute and they don't feel it every day, especially being in L.A. Mm -hmm. That was a really tough thing in the immediate aftermath, just being in L.A., I think anyone who knew him or who's a fan of him from afar felt it. But being in the city, it was 20 times over because you couldn't escape images, sound, like just everything about him. It was a looming thing. Mm-hmm. So there was a period where it was kind of a moratorium, a natural moratorium on anything that we were doing because it was impossible to think about how we pick up the pieces because he was, you know, 
legitimately a part of everything and his DNA was mm-hmm. in everything. So things definitely aren't back to normal, but in really honoring that marathon continues, you know, we are starting to pick up the threads. So a year later we are, we did start sharing information about our opportunity. Um, we did start structuring the fund to roll it out and just, we did start working on Vector 90 again and, and you know, everything is a year delayed, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't be true to his ethos. It wouldn't be true to, you know, what's become a, a universal kind of chant for people who are committed to, you know, fulfill like working passionately towards their dreams, no matter how long it takes and despite ups and downs, mm-hmm. if we didn't keep the marathon going. And so I, I think now we're just resuming the work that we, the things that we were aligned on mm-hmm. prior to his death. And in, in my own specific way, that's how, you know, we're keeping the marathon going and then broader anything, any and everything I do from this point, people are always going to associate it with Nipsey. And so that is a, um, that's a responsibility, you know, mm. to make sure that everything that I do. So like we were talking about the fund, it would be much easier to do it a different way and, and just go and raise a fund from institutions or high net worth investors. But that connection to his legacy will always kind of be a roadmap. Mm. Um, and so as I'm making decisions, the things that I filter through, like, is this aligned with, you know, what I know that we both understood and agreed and wanted mm-hmm. to, to see in ourselves and our community? So everything I do from this point, you know, will, will tie into his legacy in my narrow part of the world. That's beautiful. For for people listening who are inspired, who want to be a part of uplifting the movement, is there a way to be involved, a way to contribute? Yeah, look, for people in L.A., so— this goes back to doing things shoulder and shoulder. We're at a place now where like anyone who, li- who who wants to be a part of Vector 90 or our opportunity or on our own, one, we have a physical space. And so we, we're, we're trying to be as radical as possible to make it so we're creating it together. And so we're rolling out actually office hours with uh, mental health experts to address trauma in the neighborhood. Mm. We have tons of incredible people with really um, strong backgrounds who are coming to teach financial literacy and basics of real estate investing at our physical spaces. So we started in South Central. We were launching Vector 90s in Chicago and Baltimore imminently. And it's going to be the same there where, you know, our approach is going to be, we're going to go into the community and we're going to open up kind of what we're doing and, and let the community come build with us. Hmm. Um, in terms of the, the investment side, we're crowdfunding. So we're raising money from anyone who wants to invest, you know, in inner cities. And our focus is affordable housing, which that's a whole separate conversation because I've learned so much about housing in this country hmm. over the past, affordable housing over the past three years. And I, I really think besides the environment, it's one of the it's a civil rights issue and it's one of the most pressing issues mm-hmm. um, in this country that I think people aren't going to get it for another few years, but we're kind of running towards it right now. So yeah, you know, going to opportunity.com, they can learn about the fund and we'll be sharing ways that people can get in touch. We try to be responsive. People have questions or if they have suggestions or if there are ways that they want to help. Mm-hmm. But uh, apart from capital, we crowdfund, we're crowdfunding building our community. So Awesome. Yeah. You touched on it <laughs> earlier, but it is a question I like to ask everybody. And, and I know that you said it in terms of the business. So maybe the answer for you personally is different, but the podcast is called Work in Progress. Yeah. And when you hear that phrase, what, 
What comes to mind for you in your life that's a work in progress right now? Uh, <laughs> just like business, I'd say um, so, so much. And, and actually, let me step back from that question and, and say something. I, I meet people all the time, actually, in either in the Crenshaw District or, you know, in Inglewood or in any, I go to different cities. And the gap and their perception of me and my perception of what I know of myself is that you're this um, fully evolved, perfect, complete body of work and that everything is like perfectly in place. Like now there's a, <laughs> mm -hmm. there's a lot of this is chance, happenstance. I make mistakes on a regular basis. So I just try not to repeat the same mistakes and it's effort and it's work, you know? So I don't know if actually, I think I'll always be a work in progress. I think one specific thing I'm trying to figure out now is balance. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a buzzword, but it really is. I have let things get imbalanced in terms of the balance like, between work and then family or work and just taking time to focus on my health or my yeah. mental well-being. So that's something I'm focused on. Yeah, but there's so many different ways, so many different things. Like we talked about reading when I was younger, and that was probably the defining one of the defining attributes of my childhood and things mm -hmm. that I cite with allowing me to, to, to go to the schools that I went to and have the opportunities I have. Like, I can't tell you when the last time was that I read a book for pleasure or yeah. leisure. And I think about stuff like that. Those are small things that, you know, we shouldn't, I shouldn't let get lost. Mm -hmm. And then focusing on my kids, kids and my family. It's good stuff. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out how to get more books on my list so it's hard. <laughs> You are not alone there, my friend. No, I'm embarrassed at times at how I'm out of it I am. Well, it's a work in progress. Yeah. What else can we do? Thank you so much. No, I appreciate this you This was so me. excellent. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. This episode was edited by Matt Sasaki. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy. Brilliant Anatomy.